Are you a fan of the finer things in life? Well, of course you are. You're listening to my voice right now. I have some good news for you. If you're a fan of high class, delicious Italian coffee, I have a promo code for you. If you check out Lorenzotti Coffee at lorenzotti.coffee and use the promo code THEMADONES, you can get 10% off their fantastic beans. So join us, lorenzotti.coffee, promo code THEMADONES. You are listening to an MLGA Network podcast. The only people for me are the mad ones. The world is filled with the boring and the barely conscious. Misery loves company. But we don't have to live this way. Jessica and I are here to talk to those the system rejects, to radicals and thought criminals. The ones who never yawn or say a commonplace thing, but push the boundaries of acceptable discourse. Those who stare reality in the face and dare it to be different. History isn't made by the timid, and fun is not had by the perpetually afraid. We are the Mad Ones. So let's get to it. Welcome to the Mad Ones. I am your, I'm definitely outkicking my coverage with these guests host, Cam Harless. <laughs> and with me as always is your brings class and brilliance to every episode, hostess, Miss Jessica Green. How are you doing, Jessica? <laughs> I'm good. Don't lie to the people though. That seems wrong. <laughs> I would never lie. Um, but... <laughs> I just want, but before we get started with our guest, I did want to, to to thank Lorenzotti Coffee for sponsoring us and let you know that we have a special sponsor today. Um, it's the, Our sponsor is the only 60-second podcast on the planet where you can get a man in a shemog holding an actual newspaper and telling you the, the news of the day in 240 stunning pixels, OPSEC drip with Pilar Petrie. But since we have that out of the way, check that out. It's on YouTube. Since we have that out of the way, I want to introduce to you the Uncle Jesse of the current pa- Patriarchs of Liberty, the president of the Mises Institute, a writer, public speaker, fighter for property rights, markets, and civil society in this chaotic age. He's the man who stood behind and supported the greatest presidential candidate of all time, and ultimately my conversion from cradle Republican to anarchist as the, as the chief of staff and advisor to Dr. Ron Paul. Today we have on Mr. Jeff Deist. How you doing, Jeff? <laughs> did you say Uncle Jesse? I did. Is that like Full House? Yeah, I'm saying you're the cool the uncle of Liberty. Is that yeah. the reference? See, I'm not that old. I get the reference. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, re- I, I'd, I'd like to think of myself more like the Archie Bunker. Okay. Uh, Ar- we this, can do Archie but... Bunker. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. We can fix it in post. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for coming on the show. Like, like I said in the, the intro, um, you were the chief of staff for Dr. Paul, and Dr. Paul in 2010-ish was instrumental in moving me from, you know, Reagan Republican kid to, you know, now I run a show where I talk about anarchy, anarchy all the time. So I, I have to say thank you to you as well, because, you know, behind great men like that are other great men, and I definitely count you among those. Yeah, it's interesting that Ron led a lot more people probably to anarchist thought than might be expected. And a lot of his right. critics uh, who viewed him as some sort of cultural rightist or 
you know, some sort of former Republican who just likes low taxes and this and that. In other words, some of his Beltway libertarian critics mm-hmm. are right. actually uh, far more milquetoast than he ever was. There's actually a, a really interesting C-SPAN clip of him. I'd have to dig it up where the host asked him something about anarchy. And he says, well, in theory, I think that would be great. You know, and he says it in that typical Ron fashion, which is sort of very homespun and honest rather than parsed like Mitt Romney would say something. And so mm-hmm. I thought that was that that's really interesting that uh, Ron, despite being such a mild mannered and noble and generous and sweet guy, has actually radicalized so many people, especially in sort of your age group. Oh, yeah. Well, and, and for me in particular, it was his imagined speech. Uh, that he gave where he was talking about, you know, what it would be like if China came over and treated us like we treat Afghanistan. And it was this like moral call that I just couldn't, I couldn't look past. And so after that, it it just kind of kept going because I, there's a lot of theory that I've read. There's a lot of different things that I've delved into, but it was the morality of Dr. Paul that got me in there Mm -hmm. and the, the effective storytelling and so that's always been my, you know, primary um, principles has been morality. And I'm a Christian, so it's Christian morality. And so Dr. Paul is just perfect for that. And, you know, once you start going down that road and you start seeing the story of Jesus, the story of America, all these different stories and how much better things would be if we listened to the golden rule, like he got booed for. And what was that, 2012, where they booed him? for quoting the golden rule, you know, you go down the road further and further to you're like, you know what? I don't want aggression. I don't want anything but peace. I want to try for peace. And uh, we live in a strange time and you're, you're kind of the perfect voice for, and, and it's, it's funny. Cause I, I told you before this, you know, I've listened to probably four or five of your speeches again, just in preparation to talk to you, but it's like, I am from Alabama. So secession is in my bones. <laughs> and, you know, peaceful divorce is what I would want out of that. And uh, so I guess to get it started, um, even though I probably know how you'll answer this, I want to hear it anyway. Um, do we really need a divorce? Yes, but I think we need that sort of a multipolarity divorce, not necessarily okay. just an A-B divorce, because there's a lot of American nations, as far as I'm concerned, the problem, of course, is that red and blue America are pretty intertwined. Even mm-hmm. in the reddest states, you have blue cities. Yeah. Uh, and so it's not something that can be done neatly along geographic lines like it might have been during the Civil War. And, of course, whenever you bring up secession or even heavy-duty federalism, states' rights, you always get the aforementioned critics saying, oh, you know, this is just some big racist ploy, as though you cannot be for – allowing political divorces, which the Declaration of Independence was all about, by the way, mm-hmm. you know, that, that you can't be for allowing political divorces or against Lincoln's war without being pro-Confederacy or pro-slavery. And of course, that's mm-hmm. not true. That's yeah. just stupid binary thinking. But it's more than stupid binary thinking. It's, it's thinking designed to negate our point of view right out of the starting gate. Right. It's designed to say, oh, you know, anybody who's even talking about that. And a lot of that comes from what I would call sort of a white savior complex. In other words, you know, we're the blue states and we pay all the tax revenue and we have all the all the interesting industries and all the beautiful people and all the great restaurants. And you poor, benighted, dying, red opioid addicts in trailer parks 
in the South, you have nothing and we subsidize you, but we can't let you go because if we did, you'd impose all your terrible laws and restrict abortion and da 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 on the on the citizens, especially the black citizens of those states. And so we can't allow that. And so that's that's sort of a, you know, I, I think as a pragmatic or political measure, what makes it so hard to deal with the left on this topic, because they're just they're starting at, a, at an almost unhinged perspective from the get go, because unfortunately, the, the legacy of slavery in our country and the legacy of the Civil War has made the issue a non-starter in a lot of people's minds. We also have a terrible yeah. Supreme Court case, U.S. versus Texas, which unfortunately on the legal side, I, I would consider absolute nonsense, but it has... Um, poured concrete between the ears of a lot of legal scholars, let's just say. So it's, you know, it's something that's that's such an obvious solution to our problems. It's, it's staring us in the face. It's right there, at, you know, at the end of our noses that it's it's just crazy to have a country of 330 million people run basically by a, a handful of folks, politically anyway, run, in Washington, D.C., so that we have to have the same abortion laws everywhere in the country. We yeah. have to have the same gun laws. We have to have the same uh, laws, you know, school prayer, whatever it might be, um, you know, in Manhattan, as we do in the furthest remote part of Alaska. That's that's absurd on its face. Uh, governments aren't very good at giving up territory or power. That's not in their nature to cede that. So Washington's always going to be an obstacle. Um, but yes, I think that if you were if you were to ask me whether a, a divorce is warranted, whether it's justified, whether it'd be beneficial, I'd say 100 percent. Yes. How do you think, given that we have this uh, legal standing that's poured concrete into the ears of legal scholars, that we proceed with this? Well, I think we have to just turn our backs entirely on Washington, D.C. And covid against all odds, has given us a little taste of that, hasn't it? I mean, mm-hmm. all of a sudden people are thinking of themselves as Californians or Floridians uh, yeah. as much as they are Americans. I think that's a healthy thing. And, you know, you can't persuade people whose interests <laughs> are, are not in persuasion, right? In other words, right. people, there's an awful lot of people who benefit from the federal government as currently constituted. And that's not just federal employees. That's a whole nexus of people around them. And I would say that includes a lot of Wall Street as well, through its nexus with the Fed. So, you know, I I really think we're very much in sort of a post-persuasion situation. That was a term Steve Bannon used on a PBS series uh, call. It was called Coming Apart or America Divided or something like that. And Steve Bannon was one of the guests. And he said, you know, people are more dug into their worldview than ever before. He said, we have these little yes. smartphones in our pockets. It's never been easier or cheaper or faster to look up information. So if you want to learn about, let's say, libertarianism or Austrian economics, the cost in, in terms of doing to do so has never been less. A, basically, yeah. a little bit of your time. You're already paying your cell phone bill, right? Um, but yet we find people changing their political stripes perhaps less than ever, using mm. critical thinking perhaps less than ever. And so I don't know if Bannon's right, but it seems plausible. What if, what if, because we're so overwhelmed with information of white noise, what if persuasion is actually getting harder? You know, what, yeah. what if we're actually getting narrower and more tribalistic in our worldview because we're, we're able to sift through all this information of white noise and find um, 
what supports our existing perspective, right? It's easier now mm-hmm. than ever. Yeah. And, and, and that really struck me as, as something, you know, what does that mean for politics or what does that mean for any sort of peaceful secession or decentralization movement? And I think what it means is you just have to sort of hope that Atlas shrugged. I mean, in 1982, nobody thought what happened in the Soviet Union in 89 was going to happen. Right. And it, right. And it, it just happened because they, they had, you know, nuclear missiles rotting in silos and, you know, people eating 800 calories a day and a, a fleet of tanks that, that were rusted and didn't work. So, mm-hmm. you know, at some point, maybe FedGov is going to become like that. You know, entitlements can't be paid. The dollar can't be inflated uh, forever. Deficits can't be run forever. Uh, but but I'm really of a mindset that our job is to work on the mechanics of separation rather than the, mm-hmm. the art of persuasion. Mm-hmm. Well, that's I, I was at the Mises event in uh, Orlando. Uh, I, for, I forget what month that was. Uh, I got to say hi then. But you, that was when I first heard you talk about this concept of post-persuasion. And of course, my mind kind of starts trying to apply this concept to how I've thought about things. Because I used to be that guy that was on Twitter or Facebook that was always arguing with every person I came across. And I would give them all these great quotes and great, you know, studies and this and that. And then in about 20, end of 2015, 2016, I was like, I'm wasting my time. This is, this does nothing. I, you know, out of the hundreds, thousands of people I ended up talking to or interacting with, you know, I knew two that came over to libertarianism from that shtick. And I'm like, that's great that they did. I'm very happy that they did. But I kind of found that I've had more, I don't think that ideological self-segregation is a bad thing. And so when I've gone out and I've talked about these things and the way I feel about these things and talked about the ideas rather than arguing I found that I kind of take a lot more people with me because I'm, I'm, I'm talking about something I'm passionate about rather than coming against something someone else is passionate about. Mm-hmm. And so I do feel like there's some kind of good place to find in that post-persuasion idea where you, you stop trying to have the fights and you start trying to model what you want to see. And mm-hmm. you start you know, building community. Yeah. You start uh, telling the federal government to, to go screw themselves and live your own life. You know, I don't know how you feel about that, but that's, I remember after you, you had that, that speech, I was just like, think I've been thinking about it since. And I've been like, I want to talk to Jeff about this. And now I can. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. I would, I would wonder, um, you know, the idea of turning your back on the federal government sounds good. They interject themselves. That's a criticism I get a lot when I tell people this is, well, we got to start doing agorism and we have to start building alternative communities. And the knockdown I always get from that is, well, the government's just going to come in and stop us. Right now, we're even looking at like with Bitcoin, the government is threatening to put a 42% capital gains tax on it. And like people are freaking out and diving out of Bitcoin because of that. And it's just like, I I, I too, I'm like, are they going to just step in there? Can they just end this? You know, and if they can get in the way of Bitcoin, you know, is it possible to create these alternative markets? You know, what what do we have to do to really shake off? Like, what where can we put our efforts to shake off this um, albatross we have around our neck? 
Well, they can end Bitcoin in a sense that they can always seize your physical person, you know, mm-hmm. regardless of where your assets might reside uh, in the digital sphere somewhere. They can always seize you, <laughs> right? right? I mean, that, that's, that's the true. ultimate check that any government has. But at some point, it all rests on their credibility uh, and, and whether people would allow it. I mean, we ha- mm. there's a lot of guns in this country. And that's probably mm-hmm. the number one thing that sets us apart from any other place in the world is just the sheer number of pistols and rifles. Right. It's absolutely unprecedented. There's no, uh, there's no other country on earth that's like that. Uh, so it's really hard to even look at history and, and view a populace that's that armed and, and what might happen. So that's, that's something we have in our back pocket, I think, is the fact that we can shoot back. Uh, yeah. But more importantly, the question is, is, um, is always, well, yeah, they can stop things. Of course they can. Uh, but what does it mean to try to operate politically at the federal level? Mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, Cam, you said Ron got booed for bringing up the golden rule. I believe that yeah. was in South Carolina at, a, at a Republican uh, primary debate. You know, Ron Paul and Rand Paul have both been on the ballot. Mm-hmm. They were, you know, mm-hmm. they were on the ballot in Iowa, in, in New Hampshire, in South Carolina. Um, you know, P- Republican primary voters had an opportunity to vote for them a couple times. Yeah. And they overwhelmingly chose not to. They vote for, you know, Mitt Romney or John McCain yeah. or something. You know, I, right. I mean, these aren't people that I'm particularly interested in uh, having Sharing long drawn out conversations with at this point. So, I, I, you know, look, we're talking about 80 million voters to get just a reasonably somewhat decent uh, president. And then, you know, what do presidents do? If, if the powers that be don't like them, they don't do anything. Look at Trump. Trump didn't yeah. do anything in office. Literally, all he did was sort of tweet and bluster. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I certainly viewed Trump as more of an opportunity than most libertarians. I think libertarians were horrible on Trump and totally misunderstood mm-hmm. the, the Trump phenomenon top to bottom. Absolutely. Uh, but, but nonetheless, it didn't yield anything it, 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 beyond hope. I mean, it yielded hope in the sense that basically a third-party candidate won, folks. Yeah. Mm-hmm. A third party and destroyed dynasties. You know, I mean, yeah, he had an R by his name, but beyond that, the 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 leadership of his own party was dead set against him. You know, mm-hmm. other than ballot access, he got nothing but grief from his own party. It's true. Um, so when people say like third party, third party, Trump party did it. Okay, mm-hmm. Ross yeah. Perot got 19 million votes. 19 million votes in the early 90s, uh-huh. folks. Okay, the the U.S. population was 50 million fewer. Mm-hmm. In what, 92? Yeah, 92. When Ross Perot, he got 19 million votes. He got almost 20% of, in a general election. Yeah. So please tell me more about Joe Jorgensen. Tell, you know, <laughs> tell me about Who? Joe Jorgensen's 19 million votes, please. Yeah. So there's your politics. Well, well and, that's, and that's where I've, I've landed in, well, definitely since 2016. Because like 20... 2015, 2016 rolled around and I tried out the LP for like two weeks before I decided I didn't want to have anything to do with it. Um, And it's not, not because I dislike anyone in, well, not that I dislike certain people in the LP. There are plenty of people in the LP I dislike. Um, But it was one of those things where I was looking at this strategy 
And then I was looking at what Dr. Paul was able to do, even though he didn't win, he was able to, like you said earlier, radicalize people my age, people that were just out of high school, that were college age, that were a little bit older, and just turn them away from these these bad ideas that we'd grown up with. Like this, in tw- the we've been in Afghanistan for twenty years now. Come what September, it's in it's insanity, and so. I've, I saw the LP and I've seen Joe Jorgensen and all of their, what they've gone for. And I don't see it as worthy of my time or my, um, my money. I don't, I don't see why I would focus on that. So, um, what do you, do you think it's worthy of really getting tied into your state party and state and local or what do you think is the most important thing that we can do? Like I'm kind of anti, anti-political almost at this point i'm not really interested in any of it but like let's say you were going to tell me what would be the best idea for me to help free myself what's what would be your advice well i certainly think if you're going to get involved in politics it ought to be local because that's where you might win um Hmm. and if you look at it, it, it depends on the state. I mean, there are certainly people in Texas who are spending hundreds of thousands or even millions of dollars just to win a state house seat. But yeah. in a lot of states, you can probably win a seat just raising ten, twenty, thirty thousand dollars enough to be out there sort of competitive. And in a lot of city council and school board races and, uh, you know, county executive races, oftentimes the, the county executive is someone who's who has some jurisdiction over taxes and that sort of thing. Uh, oftentimes, you know, just five or seven or eight thousand dollars is enough. Uh, and also at the state and local level, oftentimes the fundraising rules are different. So that you know, just one maybe one person can just give you ten thousand dollars. You know, one wealthy person who likes you, and you can run for office there. Uh, but if you're going to do that, I would just say, you know, look at the district or the seat or the office. Try to find nonpartisan ones wherever possible. There's there's certainly city councils across the country, which are nonpartisan races. Uh, but, you know, just run as an R or a D, depending on the, the you know, the, the, the demographic uh, makeup of the, the seat or the district where you're trying to run. I mean, that's the obvious yeah. solution is just run as an R and D to win and say and do the same things you would do if, if you were a third party candidate. I mean, that's I, I don't yeah. know why anyone would would hobble themselves um, with an unpopular third party Appalachian from the get-go. It just doesn't make sense if your goal is to win and make changes. I mean, you know, Ron, by contrast, Ron's goal was not to win and make changes. It was to influence people, and he influenced you, and that's that's a good thing. But, you know, the criticism I made of Trump a few minutes ago that, that he yielded nothing, you could say that about the Ron Paul campaigns. I mean, you mentioned we're still in Afghanistan 20 years later. Um, So, you know, maybe I look at it as a little more of a mixed bag um, in terms of of Ron's time and and energy and effort and all that. But, uh, you know, it's a multi-front war. It's, it's, you know, on the one hand, you you ought to be working on yourself and your career Mm -hmm. and your money and your finances and your debt and your family and your skills and your hobbies. but I, I certainly think that if you're going to go out there and be active, whether that's in influence side of things, the persuasion side, or on the political side, it, it sure seems to me that local will give you wildly more bang for your buck because yeah. um, 
you know, again, there there are people running competent races for for less than ten thousand dollars. One one thing that I come from a different perspective than Cam. I used to be a leftist up until about twenty seventeen. I was what everyone would consider like an SJ, like raging SJW. And so when I started to walk away from that, which which happened because of a multitude of things, but namely because of the attack on Rand Paul by his neighbor, um, I started to see my wow. compatriots and allies start to cheer political violence. And they were like, go Rand Paul's neighbor. I'm so glad he kicked his ass. And I'm like, this is not the kind of people we want to be, right? And they turned on me like a crocodile with prey. It was so fast. And um, so I had started to be like politically homeless, started to get away from like leftism. I started reading Mises Institute. People had sent me articles that came from the Mises Institute. And um, I posted one on my Facebook. And almost instantaneously, somebody came back to me with the, he said this blood and soil thing. And I was like, well, that's awful. And then I went and looked and I found the speech and I listened to the speech. And I'm like, this is not awful at all. Um, and that was a huge uh, moment for me. One of the multitude of moments where I was like, hey, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. The way that information is being presented to me is not truthful. And um, so when I went through all of that to come out now at 2020, this election is going on. I've decided that these parties are awful. I want nothing to do with them. And here's the third party, the Libertarian Party. <laughs> and they're trying to emulate the woke talking points, hoping to attract leftists or ex-leftists or people just like me. And I can do nothing but cringe thinking like, this is, this is awful. I, the reason I walked away from the Democrats is because I, I didn't want this, you know? And so, you know, all the stuff I have in my head about being against political action, I kind of feel like I got from that sort of Mises strain of thinking, the articles I've read at Mises, the talks I've listened to. And um, what I keep hearing back most recently now is this idea that political action is effective. And what I find interesting about what you just said is not through trying to win seats as a libertarian, but to go in wherever you think you can, uh, like my, my district is all Republican. It's all deep red around here. So even though I'm technically an anarchist, just to be clear, I should go say I wanted to get into politics and run myself as a Republican and try to well, like, I mean, that I, mean, I, I just want to like get a bead on that because I'm not sure I understand. Well, the first, <laughs> do, the first thing you should do is shut the hell up on podcasts about being an anarchist. <laughs> that's 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 the first thing you should do if you I'm run personally for not going to run just but blew it okay you right. just blew it you're not running for anything um, right. yeah you know I, look I have been totally outside of political activism I was involved with the California LP in the early 90s a long time ago so okay. I'm not really one to speak I don't follow the LP I don't know what they're up to um you know, I yeah. like the idea of third parties. I wish we had more robust third parties in this country. I'd like to see uh, more wheeling and dealing, single issue coalitions, almost a parliamentary system in Congress. Uh, the, the parties aren't mentioned in the Constitution. Uh, you know, it's 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 really a tough situation because basically what the Constitution says, or at least at the federal level, it's a tough mm -hmm. situation because the Constitution says the House and the Senate can operate pursuant to the rules that they promulgate. 
That, yeah. That's basically, you know, base, that's, it's, it's that open-ended. And right. so the two parties have, have come along and said, well, whichever party has the majority com- basically completely controls the body. It controls all the committees where legislation originates. It controls the floor schedule. It controls what votes see the light of day. It controls parliamentary procedure. You know, so yeah. it, it's, it makes it very tough for third parties in, in, in this country at the federal level. There's no doubt about it. Um, right. So, you know, I think you have to look at your own situation and say what's what might work, what's best for me. But I, what I don't like is when people run for office like it's some kind of badge of honor. In right. other words, people with no qualifications, no achievement in life, no money, no contacts, no network. I mean, what what are you doing? Uh, you know, right. you, yeah. you're some absolute nobody and you're saying I should be governor of X state. Well, that's that's <laughs> absurd. You know, when right. when you know, when you're talking about someone running for for office, you know, if that person has a lot of prior success in an industry or a profession, if that person has a lot of money so that they can, each, you know, partially self-finance or at least spend a year on the campaign trail without an income and be fine. If that mm-hmm. person is well known in an area, sometimes that's like car dealers or medical doctors, for example. Right, yeah. right, um, right. You know, all that stuff where your first hurdle is name ID. Yeah. And what? Right. And so when Arnold Schwarzenegger ran in the in the recall race against Gray Davis for governor of California, well, he's Arnold Schwarzenegger, and now we've got Caitlyn Jenner. So that first hurdle <laughs> is name ID. So I don't. I I hate this idea that merely running for office is somehow noble in and of itself. It's okay. not. If if you haven't done anything, you know, in other words, you have to look at yourself and say, who am I, to to even do this. Yeah. Um, right. And if you don't, if you don't have any sort of uh, name, ID, or money, or contacts in an area, uh, you know, or, or any sort of viability, then you know, I think you ought to be focusing on other things. Mm-hmm. Well, it's like it's like why would I be telling other people how to clean their rooms when mine's dirty itself? There you go. Like what, what 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 are we what what would I do that? One of the things well, I wanted to mention I mean, is your. Let me just throw this out there real quick. You know when. It's not just about the product. It's about sales and marketing. So yeah. when when Microsoft was coming out with Windows, all the techie people hated it. Uh, you know, this graphical user interface, they said, oh, my gosh, this is for people who aren't good at computers, and I don't like Windows and these click boxes. I want to code everything. And so to this day, there are lots and lots of tech people who think Microsoft in general and Windows in particular are crappy systems. And they wish there was something else. And and back in the day, there were probably a hundred or two hundred or two thousand little competitors out there in garages, w- offering better products than mm-hmm. Microsoft. But Microsoft won. Microsoft yeah. had better marketing and and sales. Okay, so when libertarians sort of cry about, well, you know, well we have this wonderful theory, we have the best message, and we're for peace, we're for that. It, you know, it, it doesn't matter. That's only one part of it. That's the product. Yeah. Mar- sales and marketing are two different things. And, and you, know, when, you know, when the DNC wants to do something, I mean, you know, if you're the DNC and, and you want to promote a candidate, let's say, an up-and-coming candidate, who do you call? You call, the, you call Tim Cook from Apple. You call Oprah Winfrey. You call, you know, uh, I mean, you call Barbara Streisand. 
and you say, let's have a $10,000 a dinner, a, a plate dinner at your mansion. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, okay. You know, libertarians, why don't libertarians call Peter Thiel and do that? Right. You know, why, why, why is it, you know, if, if you're languishing in obscurity and poverty, you have to start to wonder why. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, what I was going to say is um, your blood in soil speech, which, by the way, is of the liberty based speeches I've heard in the last 10 years is top three easy. Um, but what's interesting to me about that was the fact that in order to hear the dog whistle that only people on the left heard for some reason, I don't know how dog whistles work, but I'm sure that it doesn't mean that they're the dogs. Um, but the fact that they had to, the first person who decided to call out that speech had to listen to your entire speech because that's the last, what, five words of your speech. And they, well, they had to uh, yeah. go to that very last point. <laughs> I mean, I don't know to whom you are referring, but th- that talk, w- to the extent I recall, is mostly about the idea that political liberty comports with human nature. Yes. It's not some bizarre thing which has to be imposed, um, which is sort of a- antithetical to our impulses. I don't believe that. Mm-hmm. And so... There are all kinds of ways to govern us besides huge, modern, centralized super states. Right. Now, maybe that means more local states and there's still a state. Okay, maybe. Maybe that means truly private cooperative things, even though those are no, no uh, earthly paradise. You ever heard of an HOA? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, you know, it's like when, you, when you're in an HOA, guess what? You signed on the dotted line. Uh, it mm-hmm. ain't perfect. So, you know, that, that speech was really about trying to pull the, the, the concept of political liberty from, I think, maybe a, uh, uh, you know, an environment in which it, it, it tends to reside, which is, a, you know, an, an overly theoretical or, um, you know, hyper-specialized, you know, hyper-individualized thinking. I mean, I, my, mm-hmm. my thought is that there are, there are methods of internal governance, which are preferable yeah. to the state, you know, whether that right. is your own conscious uh, conscience, whether that is your own upbringing, the way your parents raised you, uh, what you learned in school, what you learned through religion, your own morality, your own code of ethics. And I certainly think that you can arrive at these things in a secular manner. I'm not a particularly religious person, and I don't uh, particularly, you know, I don't, I don't deny the concept of a secular morality. But, I mean, libertarians have gone so far to the other side, so hostile mm-hmm. to traditional families, so hostile to religion, you know, uh, just, just crazy. And, you know, the particular blood and soil concept, which is, of course, ancient, uh, far yeah. older than Nazi Germany and its usage there. But, the, the, you, know, I, I, you know, people say, oh, you know, how dare anybody even bring this stuff up? Well... You know, go tell the Israelis and the Palestinians, you know, mm-hmm. hey, you know, they, that they could just exist anywhere and what difference it make. Go tell the Irish that yeah. they don't have any particular history with respect to England. It doesn't really matter. Go, go tell the Lakota Sioux, uh, you know, just, just you should let anyone into your tribe who just identifies with you. Yeah. You shouldn't <laughs> actually have to have any Lakota Sioux ancestry. You know, yeah, that's, that's kind of racist. <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean, they, yeah. libertarians want to be ahistorical, and, and I think that's a big mistake. Um, 
And it's increasingly why, you know, I, I wonder about the term itself. I mean, liberal is a term. It wasn't just that liberalism, you know, as a term was tainted by left-wingerism, which is a different thing. It's more that liberalism itself, what I would consider true liberalism, the Misesian kind, you know, basically the, the, the 18th and 19th century version of that, particularly before World War I, um, you know, even that liberalism is, and it's ostensible hereditary heirs who call themselves classical liberals today. You know, let's say the, the Hayekian flavored Cato type libertarian. Mm-hmm. Um, even they have turned it into something which I don't think is really recognizable from Mises's perspective. So the, the, the two biggest Mises book on the, uh, that relate to our conversation tonight, self-determination, sovereignty, breaking away, um, mm-hmm. our, our nation, state and economy and liberalism, which were one which were written in late ni- 1910s and, and 1920s, respectively. Uh, you know, both really talk about political minorities and their mm-hmm. rights vis-a-vis a majority. And they're, they're very pro-secession books. He worried a lot about linguistic minorities. He worried a lot about ethnic minorities and that they would have second-class citizenship, in it, you know, almost by default in their countries. And what, what should they do? What's the remedy for that? Well, mm-hmm. Muses saw the remedy as, as self-determination, as, as secession, yeah, And this is where I think um, there's a strain of universalism within libertarianism, um, which I think is, is wrong-headed. There was, I, I wrote an article a few years ago uh, that was very much about Mises called, I think it was called something like uh, decentralization, not universalism is the goal or something along those lines. Right. And so there's a lot of quotes throughout Mises' career, and he wrote for many, many decades where he says, you know, universalism's got some problems and here's X, Y, and Z. So while I would... I would Imagine that the three of us could could agree um, that there are certain individual universal human rights that that we that are derived from natural law, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which are derived from our creator or our nature, or however you want to come at it. Uh, you know, the right to your own physical bodily integrity, to not mm-hmm. be you know physically aggressed upon, uh, the right to own property, uh, the right you know some some other natural rights. But that's about as far as I would take it. Um, yeah. You know, the things that that Western classical liberals imagine are universally believed are not universally believed. Right. You know, go to Japan or China and start talking about property rights and zoning. Yeah. <laughs> and you'll you'll find that you're talking to people with a very different conception of things. Now, obviously, they're, you know. We can't, uh, you, you know, lump all Japanese and Chinese into one category. We can't lump all Americans into one category. But, but the point is that, you know, there are differences amongst peoples across the globe, and mm-hmm. and that's okay. And yeah. what what libertarianism ought to teach us is humility, not hubris. Instead of instead of this idea that we need one size fits all and that we know best. And that, you know, what China really needs is, um, you know, right. uh, uh, f- you know, a white paper on f- on enterprise zones or something. Um, <laughs> no, it's 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 not my place to tell China what it needs. Mm-hmm. And in, in in terms of human rights abuses in China, they, they, they may well be deplorable. But unless and until I personally am willing 
to put on a uniform and go fight the Chinese over those abuses strictly within China, or I'm willing mm -hmm. to send my kid to do the same, then I think I ought to shut the hell up about China. Mm -hmm. And so that that's really what I guess was, in my opinion, a very manufactured brouhaha over yes. that talk was this was this universalist uh, versus localist or particularist viewpoint. Right. And um, so, you know, hey, that that's fine. Um, I, I you know, I don't care what anyone, you know, uh, d disagrees. That's fine. But mm -hmm. I, I, you know, if someone wants to impugn motives, then, you know, screw them. Yeah, well, I, I it fully was very, agree with that. It was really easy for me to just at that moment, because I had sort of had the wool pulled off of my eyes already to say, you know, I'm going to look into this claim. But, you know, for a majority of people, I don't think that they're curious enough about the world around them to see if what they're being told is true or not. And I do agree that there are a lot, the vast populations of people out there that you're just not going to reach at all. So, you know, you if a person is curious enough in the first place, they'll find out that you weren't trying to, you know, suggest what many are might have suggested you well, meant. What is that? What was I what was I trying to suggest or what do many suggest I was trying to suggest? The, what I what was implied to me, I shared a Mises article. I can't remember. I wish I for the moment I wish I remember the article, but I, I shared it on my Facebook and this is early on when I had kind of started to walk away from my SJW tendencies. Okay. And one of those friends I was still involved with almost within a minute of me posting that article said something about, um, you should know about this guy. He is, I don't know if she directly said Nazi, but said like something along the lines of like white supremacist <laughs> sympathizer something really extreme. Wow. And I was like, what the hell? That doesn't track at all with what I'm reading on this website. It's not like I, I What's that website called? Storm something. Storm That's where all the racist Stormfront, right? I, I, it's nothing like that, you know. Like I, I think I would be sensitive to that kind of thing if it were. So I, I looked into the claim, but it was within a minute of posting the article from a person. I, I thought, I, this is the first I'd ever heard of the Mises Institute. Surely my leftist friends have not also heard of it. Um, but this person came back almost within a minute to tell me this is unacceptable literature. You shouldn't be reading this because X, Y, and Z. Wow, and okay. that was stunning to me. I was like, well, hold on, you know, like well, I should okay, be free to mean, explore my own thinking. But I mean, no. we, you know, people just have to toughen up. Look, I don't care. Yeah. You, you know, that woman, she, she, it was a female. It was. Fe yeah, of course it was yeah, female. It's <laughs> it's cool. I mean, she, she can say whatever they want. I mean, yeah. look, you know. People just need to toughen up. It's fine. Now, you to know, be the, yeah. the the response the response to someone saying you're a Nazi is not to say, oh no no no, I, I'm not a Nazi. I mean that's absurd. I think the word was I mean, uh, white supremacist sympathizer, know, right? <laughs> Wasn't Nazi directly, but that's that's but Nazi there, adjacent. I mean, but there are a lot of people. We need to be realistic about this. There are a lot of people with a positive rights worldview. Yes, and when you don't go along with that. They can, they think you are actively harming them. So yes. in other words, if I don't go along with SJW uh, social and cultural and increasingly legal pushes, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. then by definition, I am some sort of fascist to them because I'm not yep. going along. So when, when Rand Paul, you know, won't vote to give people so-called free health care, mm -hmm. 
in, in the SJW mind, he is taking health care away from them. Rand Paul is stealing something from them that they have a right to. So then when his neighbor tackles him viciously, and in Rand's defense, blindsided, by the way, Rand's not a huge yeah. guy. Um, yeah. He still you know, subdued they, him. They consider that just. They, mm-hmm. they giggle about that. And, celebrate. Um, be, and celebrate that openly. Yep. And Twitter does nothing because they think Rand Paul is taking something from them. So, but in the same vein, you know, it, it, the, your, your SJW friend thinks Mises.org or Jeff Deist is somehow taking something from them by refusing to go along. And right. so if she is anti-Nazi, then Mises Institute, you know, I mean, it's just the, the whole thing is just, it's just so yeah. bound up in this kind of thinking. And so. But it is self-defeating because it was plain to me. And I was like, that doesn't that doesn't track. That doesn't make sense. So like they lose people along the way while they're trying to, you know, bring in this sphere of control. Many of us slip along the wayside and say, you know, I'm not going to go along with that. And if it's ha- if it happened to me, it's happening to a lot of other people who are going, no, I'm sorry. That line of thinking doesn't make sense. Well, I'm not, um, you know, I don't know if I don't know if they're losing people. I mean, maybe they're losing people, but maybe they're appealing to people as well with their stridency. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I read a book recently and interviewed a, a, a guy, sort of a left progressive. He's from a small town called Brainerd, Nebraska, population mm-hmm. 300. Okay. And now he lives in Brooklyn uh, and is in the literary and publishing world. So he's, you know, he's sort of around all these uh, digerati types. Mm-hmm. And in his book about growing up in rural Nebraska, he, he says, you know, what I found is that, and he's defending his hometown, that these people in Brooklyn almost view these red flyover states like Nebraska, Trump country, as deranged. As mm-hmm. though these people are just beyond hope. Um, and, you know, they're just, they're just absolutely immoral monsters. And I think on the woke left, this is a widespread sentiment that, you know, we are clearly moral and above reproach. And even if we sometimes fall down in our personal lives, like let's say John Kerry preaches environmentalism, but he flies a private jet around. Okay, you know, we're not perfect, but we have the right doctrine that we're at least trying. Right. 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 So this is very religious. It sounds like Christians who say, you know, yeah, of course we all sin, but at least we have a, you know, a Christian goal. And so the left is very religious in that sense. So, you know, so when you say that they're losing people by calling people Nazis or racists or white supremacists or something, yeah, they probably are. And and I certainly have heard stories like yours, you know, people Mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. who have come from the left. But um, I don't know. You know, I I I think we all any of the any of us who spend much time on social media, I think what we have to understand is that the 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 uh, um, frequent social media users skew progressive overwhelmingly there are millions and millions and millions of americans in places like brainerd nebraska who are not using twitter all day right, <laughs> right. and so you never hear from them and as a result maybe you get a, maybe we get a skewed perspective of america and i certainly hope we get a skewed perspective of america because it's pretty bad mm. Well, in, in that talk, I believe, like I said, I listened to like four or five of your talks recently, but I think in that particular speech, you talked about um, how, well, let me back up. 
um, the libertarian party and all of that, there's, there's this phrase that they use, which is a world set free in our lifetime, which is universalist, like what you're saying. And so it, it makes me think of the, um, I think it was Thomas Sowell's um, constrained versus unconstrained view of humanity and how, and you kind of talked about how a lot of people are not looking at human nature as it is and how it functions, but how they believe it can be remade into and how libertarianism and the works of Rothbard and Mises were the, were the only ones that um, recognized humanity as it is and worked within that framework and looked mm -hmm. at that. And so the, I think one of my favorite phrases that came out of that talk was when you said what we need, which is kind of against that phrase of a world set free in our lifetime is we need to be better, but not perfect. And that's what we're shooting for. And I, I, I wrote that down. And so now it's going to be something I use a lot because you said, you know, we need to be better, not perfect. And I'm like, that's the message because we're setting people up for failure. We're setting people up for nihilism or black pills when we make them think that we're going to li literally be able to set the whole world free, including Iran, China, all of these places within our lifetime through a third party in the United States. <laughs> yeah. Like what, where are you putting your hopes? Because this is not, this is not going to be fruitful. I don't think. Well, to be fair, I mean, Rothbard was criticized for this too, this sort of utopian thinking about man. Um, yeah. Certainly, I'd like to think that Rothbard and Mises were two of the better uh, writers on the human condition in terms of being pragmatic in their look at it, but mm -hmm. they certainly aren't the only ones. Um, but yes, I mean, right now, world set free. I mean, how about how about just you can go to your local 7-Eleven without a mask? <laughs> right. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll worry about China a little later. Um, <laughs> yeah. But also the idea that Western, I guess what we could call uh, Western liberalism and what critics call Western neoliberalism um, is this, it, which usually in the political sense takes the form of social democracy, which I consider the United States. Yeah. Um, that, that this is the ultimate form of political organization for the world, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, and that's just going to cause nothing but friction. Uh, I mean, that's what it did in it's Iraq. Not, it's, it's, not my, it's not my job to make Iran into a Hayekian uh, spontaneous order society. <laughs> right. <laughs> you know, that's a little bit above my pay grade, to put it mildly. Um, and so... Yeah, that better not perfect, I think, is is an important thing to think about. I think that we should reject utopianism. We should reject blank slate thinking and we should reject the, the thoroughly left progressive Marxist concept of, of a perfectible man. You know, oh, yeah. you know, if, if people would just get rid of these stubborn attachments to things like, uh, you know, family or something like that, we could really move on and make some progress here. You know, uh, yeah. I don't, I don't want to do that. Yeah. And it kind of goes into like, if, you know, if people could just hear Joe Jorgensen speak, they would all have that moment and switch over to our line of thought. Like, I think maybe the, the funniest thing that I saw during the last election cycle was when she, uh, she went on to, um, what's his name? Dave Rubin's show. And she, without knowing what his answer would be without, you know, thinking through what she was doing live, she asked him 
if she had earned his vote. And so he then replied, no, no, I don't know. And then gave reasons. He was, he was like, I'm not trying to talk my audience out of voting for you, but here are the reasons why I'm not going to. And I laughed so hard because I was just like, how does, do these people truly believe that if they just go door to door and have lunch with everyone or Joe Jorgensen or Gary Johnson or whatever, whoever they decide to do it is going to be able to have one conversation or one debate. And then the whole like 51% is now theirs. And it's just mind boggling to me that, but then again, I do lie along the lines of right now I am building my family. I know where my grandparents are buried. I know, I know the land that I'm from. I know who I am and how that ties into the past and how I want it to go into the future. And so that is my primary thrust. I have five children. I am not thinking about politics. I am thinking about how to get around politics because I have better things to do. I have more life to live. I have money and wealth and happiness to pass on to my children. And so when it comes to LP or, you know, political designs on the world, I have none right now because like I I said the thing about making the bed, but right now I'm worried about creating a future and realizing what happened in the past than I am trying to change other people's future, if that makes any sense at all. Right. Well, I mean, to be fair to the LP, other third parties didn't fare any better and probably fared worse. <laughs> and, That's uh, true. That's true. And I do know that Scott Horton told me that Joe Jorgensen is a lovely woman. Um, and, and Scott and is so, a lovely man. You know, He's so nice. That's that's sort of that, but it's a very, 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 very tough sledding for third parties in, in national. Yeah. Just really tough. Yeah, absolutely. I I find that I do support things like uh, DeSantis and his the way that he's been running Florida, and it's kind of it's sticking his thumb in the eye of the the federal regulators. So I do see what you mean about like if someone's an R and D and they've got the right idea, like you know, I, I, that would be like. It, it would give me pause before like I shouldn't support that person. They're part of the system. But like mm-hmm. if he's saying if he's if he's actually protecting the liberty of the people that he's, you know, in charge of or representing, then I should vocally support him loudly in in that action, in the action that he's doing. And I think that's maybe the operative, not so much that um, we should all try to get political positions. But yeah, I love Ron <laughs> that we should all get political <laughs> positions, but that um, we should uh, in our lives, in our vocalizations, support the actions of liberty, wherever they might come from. And I think that that's a fantastic message that that clear that actually like clears something up for me that I've been feeling conflicted about having only read um, Rothbard's work, Anatomy of the State, maybe a year or two ago. And that got me real jacked up about we got to we got to burn the state down, man. Mm -hmm. And now, you know, so I'm I'm coming down from that high a little bit. And being like, okay, what can we actually do? Because if I try to burn the state down, they're going to shoot me. So (laughs) we need to find somewhere in the middle here. But look, let me offer this to help you with that. Um, Thank you. The world needs theoreticians. I mean, Murray Rothbard was a big brain guy. He wrote millions of words. And, you know, he, he didn't have kids. His books were his kids. 
Mm-hmm. That, that's basically his legacy. And so, you know, this is a unique individual, okay? When he writes Anatomy of the State, which is only 55 pages, I think, unbelievable little short book, devastating book, mm-hmm. um, you have to view that as like, what if there were a, a big-time cancer researcher and they said, what, what's your goal? And this doctor says, my goal is a world without cancer. And people say, oh, come on, cancer, you know, there's a million forms and it's, there's always going to be cancer. There's always going to be something. You're never going to eradicate cancer. Why don't you just figure out how to help people with uh, common colds or something, right? You, you could say that of a criminologist or a detective. You know, what, mm-hmm. what's your goal for the, the city of whatever? My, my goal is zero crime. You know, that's, that's what I'm aiming for is zero crime. And everyone could scoff and say, oh, oh, come on. You know, you, human beings have been murdering each other since the beginning of time. Why are you so worked up about this? You know, if we take, take some halfway measures, maybe we can reduce bike thefts. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, you, you have to view Rothbard especially in Anatomy of the State in particular as, as, a, as a, a theoretical and aspirational type work. Okay. Um, mm. it, it's, not, it's not the kind of thing that is, that is likely to happen. But it's all right to have as a North Star. Mm. Yeah. I, On the prag- pragmatic, practical level, do you think it is uh, better to have the world set free in our lifetimes kind of idea or in mind? Or do you think it's better to set like reachable goals? Or do you think that there's some place in between that hmm. would work best for that? You know, that's, that's so tough. And there are so many better people you could interview than me on all this political <laughs> action stuff. I, I mean, it's funny that we fall and everyone specializes in what they're worst at. That's what Murray said. And now you guys are asking me questions about what I'm worst at, which is that, you know, it, it's just, it's so difficult. I wish we could get together on issue coalitions. Um, okay. In, in a more, you know, if, take abortion, if all the money which has gone over the years into uh, the coffers of Republicans who said they were pro-life. Mm-hmm. If all those millions and millions and millions of dollars from sometimes single-issue voters, pro-life voters, if all that yep. money had simply gone into actual mechanisms for helping young girls in trouble. You know, think how how much could have been saved if all if if all the you know if all the energy of red state versus blue state, um, you know Bush, Bush versus Gore and the antipathy that came out of that, um, you know it, if all that had gone into simply you know huge energy against the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, for example, where we spent trillions of dollars, we're gonna. Have trillions more because we're going to be in Afghanistan forever. It's, it's going to be like Korea. Mm. Um, and we're going to have unbelievable VA bills for these yeah. young people for a long time, folks. Uh, so we have no idea what those wars are really going to cost us. Uh, you know, it, if these things could have been avoided on, on some sort of co- coalition level as a single thing rather than a politicized left versus right thing, it just strikes me that we could we could avoid a lot of heartburn in this country. I mean, I would say, you know, obviously marijuana and cannabis legalization have been sort of a drip by drip 
victory of sorts over the years at the state level. Mm -hmm. Everything mm -hmm. that's good uh, on, on marijuana has happened at the state level, by the way. It didn't happen yeah. at the federal level. Um, right. But if you look at gay marriage folks, um, you know, right up until 2008, Barack Obama was saying, you know, a marriage is between one man and one woman. Bill Clinton said that. Hillary Clinton said that. You know, Al Gore said that. They all said that. But, but a long time ago, you know, even in the 1970s, after Stonewall and, and yada yada, and, and uh, you know, into the 80s when AIDS, 80s, 90s, when AIDS became a, a big thing. I mean, people who, who wanted gay marriage organized in a way mm -hmm. that the fact that, you know, gays themselves may have been a one or two percent cohort of the population, their, their, their influence and power and voice was wildly outsized, you mm -hmm. know? So they, you know, they were able to get, you know, the Barbara Streisands of the world to support them. Um, and at some point, this is a lesson, at some point, I don't know when that point was, but at some point in the last 20 or 30 years, some people decided, you know, we are going to have gay marriage in this country, period. We'll do it legislatively. We'll do it through the courts. We'll do it through social pressure. We'll do it through corporations. We'll do it through, you know, the, the, uh, the mainline religions. We'll do it by hook or by crook, but we're going to have it. <laughs> and those people were a tiny percentage of the population, but they had friends and influence and connections, uh, you know, amongst people with, with, you know, media and money and power and influence. So right. imagine if, if a group equally as dedicated and a group that, that similarly only represented, let's say, 1% or 2% of the population had decided 40 years ago, we are going to get rid of the income tax in this country, mm -hmm. period. We are not going to have an income tax. We're going to eliminate it. We're going to do that by hook or by crook and by all the same mechanisms and approaches and incrementalism and, and whatever. Um, it, it's, it seems to me that that's, that's a, an imperfect but interesting analogy. Um, and so, you know, if you're thinking now about 10 years or 20 years or 30 years from now, what things are going to look like, especially if you have kids and you should have kids. Um, <laughs> Common theme on this show. I think that's got to be the way to go. You know, you got to you got to look at uh, at that kind of incrementalist incrementalist wielding of power. Yeah. Well, and that's 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 kind of I talked about the kind of issue um, coalition kind of idea with uh, Josh Smith, who uh, was a big part of the Mises caucus in the LP. What was that about two weeks ago? We talked to him. Mm -hmm. um, and I was just asking him, you know, because, you know, I see what they're doing in the LP. I understand what they're doing by trying to take it over, by trying to get rid of the kind of leftist seat that is flooded it. Um, but my question to him was along those lines, which was right now we have the tyranny of COVID. We have uh, pass, uh, vaccine passports looming in the distance. And I was like, I know you want to take over the LP. I know you want to be able to affect the nation through, um, you know, a presidential election with your presidential candidate. But mm -hmm. my question was, what are you doing now with all the disaffected Republicans, all the people who no longer have Trump, not really, not in any sort of power, and everyone who's against these COVID restrictions that have no one to go to at this point, who's really, besides DeSantis, like there are places... 
And my question was, what, what could we do? Like, let's say I joined the LP in the Mises Caucus right now. What could we do to get together with those people to change what's happening right now? Yeah, and I, yeah. I just feel like that's, if you're going to do it, it, it has to be co a coalition with people who are not like us fully, who do not think like us fully, who can see the issue and fight through the issue we have right now, rather than focusing on some, I mean, yes, focus on the big picture that you or your personal big picture, but what are we doing now? I guess was my question. And I think that that's essentially what you're getting at as well. Don't want to put words in your mouth, but. <laughs> well, I know it's unsatisfying, but you got to play a long game. Yeah. And that yeah. game may, may mean, a, you know, a results that beyond your lifetime. It's yeah. not what people want to hear, but it's what every decent civilization has done. Yep. Well, let me, let me ask you one of the questions, like I told you before we actually got on here, we are purveyors of white pills. We um, believe, and it's something that Michael Malice has talked about in the past, but it's, it's, we believe in rejecting the nihilism, rejecting the darkness, the pessimism, and you know, we are going to have hard times. We, are, we may not be getting to a, we won't get to a place very soon where everything is good and hopeful and beautiful, but there are little things that show us that we can win or we could overcome or we could find a way through the madness. And I was wondering for you there, it doesn't have to be national or it can be anything in your life that you think you would share with someone that would give them some form of hope in the darkness mm. right now. Do you have something that you well, would tell people or yeah, something I mean, even personally for you? I mean, deflation is the great hope of our okay. society. Deflation is what makes our material living possible. I mean, in other words, technology and innovation has tended to outpace the state in mm -hmm. the West which is why uh, you know, goods and services become cheaper over time if the government lets them. The things government controls, like education and healthcare, get more expensive. Uh, but, yeah. but overall, uh, things are wonderful. I mean, all around us are unbelievable material goods, including mm -hmm. in the digital world, which you know, kings and queens 100 years ago, 200 years ago, couldn't have dreamed of. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we have no cause to complain in that sense. It's not the material world where we're lacking. It's between the ears. Um, and, you know, people don't want to hear this, but, you know, it's, there's a more moral aspect to this. I mean, we've gotten fat and weak and lazy and soft. Mm -hmm. And in, in many ways, we don't deserve the material inheritance we've gotten from mm -hmm. better, stronger, tougher, harder people who came before us. And libertarians never want to hear this about ancestry. Oh my gosh, dog whistle. You know, oh, okay. No, I owe something to my great grandparents. Okay. I owe something to Mises. Mm -hmm. I owe something to Henry Ford. Right. Um, I, I have very faint memories of my great grandmother. She only lived till I was about five or six. But um, she didn't trust washing machines for clothes. <laughs> <laughs> she, she thought, that, oh, they don't do a good job. And so she had this kind of bucket contraption with a washboard that sort of mm -hmm. went into it. And it was sort of like a mop bucket, like you'd see a janitor using somewhere. But, but so it was angled. And you, so you scrubbed the clothes. And then the water went into sudsy water, I guess, went into the wash bucket. It was a very physically demanding thing. And, um, you know, that, 
that's that's someone that I can remember within my lifetime. Um, and, and so imagine what her perspective and her life and hardships were like, you know, um, seeing widespread automobile use come into being, seeing, uh, you know, vers- replacing horses, seeing widespread electricity use come into being, seeing indoor plumbing coming into being, seeing uh, modern vehicles, seeing air travel come into being, seeing widespread telephone and radio and then television come into being. She didn't live to see internet come into being. Um, right. You know, when, when we want to we want to give our our mundane lives some sort of whiff of romance that we live in these incredibly, you know, changing times. No, 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 no. She saw more change than I've seen. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we need to sort of get over ourselves, uh, roll up our sleeves and, and just be appreciative of the, not only the material abundance around us, but the digital means to communicate and organize and inform and teach and, and get together. You know, it's um, we, we don't deserve to be unhappy and mad. We haven't earned that right. I love that. Love that. That's incredible. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that might have been the best white pill we've had so far. Like, I, I feel like, damn, I feel white pilled right now. <laughs> my my great grandmother could kick your ass. How's that? For I'm sure she could. <laughs> well, I don't I remember. She this, had but biceps. Like apparently, no. Apparently, according to my grandmother, apparently she she had some forearms. Okay, oh, that wow. makes sense. And you know why she had some forearms? Because she did physical work, which is what almost every human being who ever walked the earth did. So we're sitting here talking to each other via YouTube or whatever. No comparison. Um, when my husband and I moved out to the country, we didn't have a washing machine for about three or four weeks. And so I bought two wash tubs and a old fashioned. I had a roller and the very accordion thing that you're talking about. And I lasted about two days doing that. And I was like, oh, my God, let's get our quarters together. We're going to the laundromat. <laughs> because it was so physical. The, the next day, my shoulders, I had to ice them. I had to take anti-inflammatories. It was, I just, um, I'm sure that over time, if I had done that from infancy, I would have built up the kind of muscles you need to do it. But it kicked my ass in two days. Um, so, yeah, I believe that um, even dead, this woman could probably still kick my ass. So. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and it makes me think of uh, my my wife's grandmother talks constantly about her grandfather who if people would just come to his house and want to want to fight him and like for fun. And so <laughs> my her great grandfather or great great grandfather, I'm not sure which I don't know what the, the math is on this because her grandmother will talk like, you know, 200 years back if you let her. But um, he would literally people would come to his door and um, they would say, hey, I, I, I've, I've come to I've come to fight. I want to fight. And he's like, okay, well, let me finish my dinner. Would you like some dinner? And they would, if they hadn't eaten dinner, he would sit down there and eat with them. And then after they were done, they would go out and fight. And that was, that was a day in the life. And it's like, it's like, clearly we are not living in the same world. These people are (laughs) just to be the tough man in town. I don't know. Wow. (laughs) But it's like, obviously that is not a, that is that is so far removed from where we are because you know you know washing machines as jessica's said has done more for women than feminism has ever has and so <laughs> yeah i have the personal and, experience to go with it like thank you ge you are 
<laughs> we don't live in those times anymore. And I think there are a lot of weak men. And that's that's kind of been one of my things is, you know, I want, I don't want to be a weak man. And so I'm investing in myself and in my children so that I don't raise weak men because weak men is what leads to bad times and bad times could come at any moment. (laughs) I love it. But I am, I, I cannot tell you how honored and grateful I am that you decided to come on our show. Uh, I got to say hi to you briefly at that Mises event. And I was just like, man, I just like to sit down and just talk about whatever with because oh here's a question someone told me you were in a band at some point in oh life. yeah were you in a a band long time ago what were, kind of band just just long time ago <laughs> okay <laughs> fair enough because they, they they told us to ask about the band that you were in and what it was called or something and i was like i don't know anything about this so i thought i'd ask do, yeah, did you used go- to be a heavy just- metal man just goofing around college stuff okay <laughs> they made it sound like you you were like some secret uh musician no, celebrity no, or something i wish i i i wish i were a musician but i'm not well story of my life i deeply appreciate you coming on here sure absolutely um, i deeply appreciate what you guys do at the mises institute and i mean like i said i Every time you have a speech, I listen to it because it's it's rare to find someone who has common sense in the world right now because it does it is very far from common. So, um, I like I said, I appreciate you coming on. Um, if do you have anything else you would want to tell to our little audience of malcontents and agorist leaning people? <laughs> No, just projects you have coming up or no, I, I really appreciate you guys having me on. Um, just ask people to follow me, follow at, you know, at Mises at Jeff Deist and, uh, you know, don't be afraid to roll up your sleeves and, and do some heavy reading from time to time. Good advice. Oh, I do need to tell you one last thing. So I got the free okay. copy of economics in one lesson from you guys. And my wife, uh, the midwife was here when we had our last baby and she brought her uh, 14, 15 year old son. And I just ended up talking to him about different things. And um, he was like, so, you know, what do you, what, what do you do? Cause she told me later that on the drive home, they talked about how cool I was. And I was like, well, they're wrong. I, but before he left, like I, I had told him, you know, kind of how important economics were and this (laughs) very nerdy stuff. I was very surprised that he said I was cool, but I actually gave him one of the copies of uh, economics in one lesson. So hopefully that kid who thought that I was cool left with something that you guys put together to help spread the, the ideas that we're all here together because of, and that we want to spread individually. So there's that. Um, so yeah, you, you can find Jeff on Twitter at Jeff Deist. You can follow at Mises on Twitter as well. Go to Mises.org to check out the Mises Institute. They have tons of audiobooks, regular books. You can read about the entire history of uh, libertarianism, Rothbard, Mises, Hike, all of that there. Um, you also have two podcasts, right? The Human Action Podcast and Radio Rothbard. Correct. And if you're not listening to those, you're an, you're you're a nerd, 
and you need to listen to them. <laughs> um, but beyond that, I just have to clean up our our own act here. But I, like I said, I'm I'm honored that you're here. I was. It's we we had Scott Horton, and I had the same feeling. You two are people that I can look up to, and that um, you know I'm I'm days. not one who who feels that I need a leader, but there are admirable men out there that I can look up to, and you're one of them. And I appreciate you for being out there and for coming here. All right. So. Well, thanks, guys. I appreciate it. <laughs> Thank, you. Thank you. Okay. Uh, <laughs> and so with that, dear audience, um, if you want to find me, you can find me on Twitter at Cam Harless. If you'd like to hear from the 12th century peasant, uh, Miss Jessica Green, that's at Soup Canarchist. Uh, we do have a locals. If you want to join us in there to talk, talk trash and have fun. Uh, we need you to be in there for it to bump. So bump it with us. Um, we also have t-shirts. I will link the t-shirts if you want one. I finally bought one of my own t-shirts, so I'll be wearing that next week. And uh, Mr. Diced is going to get one of those as well. Um, so if you want to listen to us, wearethemadones.com or um, you can go to mlganetwork.com, listen, any podcatcher, um, watch us on YouTube. That's the best way to do it because you get to see our faces or watch us on Odyssey. Odyssey and what um, uh, Jeremy Kaufman are doing with library is a very is very important. And they're coming against a lot of pushback from the federal government and the SEC now. So we need to support those guys. Um, and then check out uh, Lorenzotti.coffee. Use promo code THEMADONES to get 10% off your order. And finally, um, listen to my yep. friend Pilar Petrie's 60-second podcast on YouTube called OPSEC Drip. Um, I, it came out of a joke that I made with him, and he does it every day, and it's in, like, it's in 240p. Like, it's beautifully bad quality, and I love that. <laughs> so check that out if you can. Also, don't forget to hit subscribe and hit the notification bell because that does a lot to uh, bump our channel and yeah, give us access like. to all kinds of uh, YouTube things. And if you're coming to this episode after the live feed, leave a comment down in the comment section because that does actually help us kind of bump it up in the algorithm and we would really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. <laughs> <laughs> and so to, what to look forward to. This coming Wednesday, three days from now, I guess, we have Miss Carrie Wedler joining us. That'll be a lot of fun. And then May starts. May's a fun, a fun one. We have one that I haven't announced yet, but we start off with Freckles and Brit. And then in between the, the next one for my birthday, by the way. So you guys yes. have to come to my birthday feed and you have to bring May the 5th. canned wine. May 5th. May 5th. Right. Just after that, the Sunday following that, we're gonna have Tetsui on with uh Ali from Tennessee. Um Best couple so on Twitter. Join us for that. Then the Badass Miss Monica Perez, followed by her wonderful dolt, Mr. Brad Binkley, the week after. We have a great month of shows coming. And if you don't join us, I hate you. And <laughs> go die, I guess. No, no, don't. Um, but with that, we love you guys. Thanks for watching. Thanks for listening. And as always, be the glitch you want to see in the Matrix. Matrix.